And you know what? This is hard. And sometimes I don't want to do it, which of course like rocked me to my core. And then I just go, I'm like, mommy, I just want you to know, like, I get that as much as I see what you're going through, only you are actually going through this, right? Only you are experiencing this in this level, right? And while I don't think you're really ready in a second to stop fighting, but if the time ever comes where you're just done, I will advocate for whatever you want. Like you don't have to be any particular way for me. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn more about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Our guest today is Miss Kathleen Bilton. How quickly can you plan a wedding? Well, Kathleen was able to organize hers within a matter of hours and the venue was her mom's hospital room. Today, she'll share what she learned about navigating the healthcare system, what she learned about life, her volunteer efforts, and why she would gladly be a caretaker to her mom all over again. Grab your warm drink and tune in for an interesting episode. Let's get to it. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Well, thank you for having me, first of all. And hello, audience. I am Kathleen Bilton. I work in real estate development professionally. I also have been a caregiver. I am a friend. I really stand for families and people having like what they want for their lives. And that includes around their health and even the end of life. All of that matters because we only get one shot at it. That is very true. Only one life. Mm -hmm. Kathleen, can you share a little bit with us about your caregiving experience? Well, in the tail end of 2016, my, my mom had been grappling with that she had kind of been told like, oh, they think she has allergies. She was having some trouble. Like, her lungs would get irritated or she wouldn't feel very well, or she'd get like her sinuses backed up and things like that. And there was really no, nothing they could pinpoint being the issue. And she had gone through a bunch of rounds of testing for different allergens. And she was doing like, uh, like elimination diets and things like that, just trying to figure it out. Well, right uh, in the middle of December, literally like the day before my birthday, she happened to go to the doctor to a pulmonologist And she left that appointment on supplemental oxygen because her fingers and her lips were turning blue. So we had spent a couple of years of her investigating allergies when it turns out that she had interstitial lung disease um, and pulmonary fibrosis and all that comes with that, which is a progressive and degenerative illness that there is currently no cure for. And a little bit further down the road, like we started getting involved as a family with the American Lung Association and participating in events. And now I chair those events, raise a lot of money whenever I can. I'm happy to talk to anyone about stats, facts, figures, really like make sure they have whatever that they need. But as a caregiver, what that looked like was towards the middle of 2018, my I was living in South Florida. My parents were in Palm Beach County. My day job was two counties over in Coral Gables, which doesn't necessarily sound very far, but in that particular region, they're the three largest counties in Florida. And it literally takes an hour and a half to two hours to cross it just to commute. So my husband ended up taking a job up in Atlanta, but I'm like, my mom is unwell. I'm not ready to go. Like, I want you to be happy, honey. And I have to be here. So I ended up moving into my parents' home and commuting that hour and two hours, basically each way 
every single day to work, but it gave me an opportunity to be close to my mom for as long as I could and like help make dinner if I could or help keep up the house or run errands with her. And it's with her particular illness, a lot of what that looked like is she was hypersensitive to scents and whatnot. And like things we might take for granted, like our shampoo, your lotion, your even your makeup has a scent. She'd be really sensitive to. So like if we were going to the grocery store, it was at like 7 a.m. Like the minute they opened the doors, that's when we got there because there were the fewest people possible. And she was also on an portable oxygen concentrator. So she had short windows of time in which to be able to accomplish anything out in the world. But again, eventually, like it, it gets progressively worse. And she went from being this, like my mother was the most vibrant person I knew ever, like really out there, like in the world can do anything. Like she was laid off for a time period many, many years ago. And like, I think our house redid the back patio, like individual stones in the Chattahoochee, like really like she painted everything. Like she just she could do anything. I'll host these big holidays with 50 people. She literally, the, the year my cousin was born on Christmas day, she served dinner like five times because people were coming in wow. and out. Like there was nothing <laughs> this woman couldn't do. And in the course of her illness, this world, she went from being like, I can do anything to, oh, I probably need to avoid this to the world getting smaller and smaller. So eventually she couldn't even leave the house except to go to the doctors and someone had to go with her because she needed to be in her wheelchair because she couldn't walk that far. And then trying to find ways to protect her from other sense, like call ahead and be like, hey, can make sure just like there's no oil diffusers and stuff like that. Like that takes a lot of effort even to stay on top of that and also really just be there for her and empower whatever it is she was going through. It literally was a full-time job just to keep in touch with doctors and appointments and things like that, having to argue with insurance companies. And after following, you know, a bad infection where she was hospitalized, she was finally able to come home, like literally on my birthday via ambulance. And it was a whole production. They brought her home to hospice care in our home. And here's the living room and here's my bedroom that I was sleeping in. And I knew every beep every nuance, every sound that machine make, even though we had 24 seven nurses there, critical care to make sure everything was fine or to help keep her comfortable or do whatever she needed. Cause 25% of patients that go into hospice actually come off hospice. And there were, if she was able to have like built up certain strength and things like that, that there might have been an opportunity for her also and that's what she was fighting for. But also with progressive illnesses, like it takes a toll on your body. Like her heart rate was like always over a hundred. Like she was tachycardic all the time, even when she was calm. And then like, if she got disoriented or something or like, so they're trying to take my mask from me or they're trying to do this. I would get texts in the middle of the night or I would hear the alarm go off. It didn't matter. It was like, I was a light sleeper before, but I was a very light sleeper. Because I knew that she, my mom was the one who wanted to make sure everybody else was taken care of. But at the same time, I knew she didn't want to be alone. I knew that it was important to her that some of her family be there to advocate for her, that she's not just like, I mean, she's in the care of essentially strangers in the nursing staff. And they were wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I cannot say enough things about Hospice of Palm Beach County and the difference that they made in her life. And But I knew it was important for us to be there.
So I started making all of her meals. Like we had her on this like real rigorous diet plan to try and get things just to get her in a shape that if it was possible for her to get a lung transplant, like, or to get on the list, like we were fighting for that. And that looked like I bought an instant pot or like I had her buy me an instant pot for Christmas or my dad did. (laughs) And I bought the biggest one possible. And I was like turning out these real specialized meals, like every single day, packaging everything up. It was all portion controlled. And then I had a list that I shared with my dad. So while I was at work, he could give her like the menu options and he knew how to like, I would write on the covers, like, Okay, heat at XYZ temperature for 30 minutes. And we also had cameras set up so that even if I wasn't there, I could hear the doctors <laughs> talk to us. Oh, like, wow. <laughs> and then I could pop in and say hi while I was working. And again, like I said, I was working full time. And I'm really grateful that my boss, the company I was with at the moment, was very generous with regard to understanding because this two hour commute plus there was a point when she was in the hospital, that hospital was another 40 miles further North. It was literally a three hour drive. And it was like, I would get to my desk in the morning and I'd by two, three o'clock, I had to pick up and leave if I was going to be able to see her before they did the night shift swap over. And it was like, only if you're staying over, do you get to visit after X amount of time? Um, I guess the long and short of it is that it took a lot. It really took a lot. And I would do it all over again in a minute. If she were still here, I would absolutely 100%. No question. I don't care how tired I was. I was going to do anything because I know she would have done it for us. That's lovely. It sounds like you really did take a lot of care. How long did you do that for? So let's see. So she passed away January 2019. So I moved into their home in September, but I was kind of occupying space and spending time with them at that point. It really was only a couple of months from the time she got extremely sick to being in the hospital to coming home. She was hospitalized, I want to say November 2018, and she was there for over a month. And I was scheduled to get married December 15th at my sister's house, like the cutest little backyard wedding that was ever going to be. Right. And it was even designed around and organized around how can she be there? When I was going through like bridal showers and things like that, I was giving out scent free shampoo and conditioner and instructions to my friends. Like, Make sure this is all you use for two or three weeks leading up to the event. Like everything was organized around that because all she wanted was to see me marry the love of my life. And even when she was in the hospital, she said that. So yeah, it took a lot of care. (laughs) And while it wasn't very long, it was, it's like an intense race because any moment something could change. And Very specifically, we did have a few moments where things could change. When she was brought into the hospital, they put her into progressive care unit, which is a little bit more elevated than a standard hospital floor, but not quite ICU. Well, she was there for about a week. And one day, like, I guess something was going off with her numbers. They literally rushed her to the ICU and I happened to be there with her. And I mean, I remember her holding my hand because there was not a lot of communication. It was like, well, we just need to do this right now. And it's like, holy beans. And then they're trying to talk to us about, well, you should think about if you have to be intubated, like, what does that mean? 
functionally being intubated for someone who's not likely to ever come off of it is theoretically the end of their life. Because in order for you to be intubated, they have to sedate you and you're not really present anymore. So she had a concern about like, if that's what's happening, like, I want you guys to understand that that's what this means. And I know it's not what she wanted. Now we got to the ICU and that was the moment I was like, this wedding's happening right here, right now. Oh, wow. Right here, right now. My husband had literally just driven back to Georgia after being with us for a week or so. And I called him up and I'm like, you're getting on a plane. We're getting married tomorrow. (laughs) Made a couple of other calls to some of my girlfriends. One of them, I explained what was happening. She's like, what do you need me to do? I'm like, a cake would be nice, but it's not necessary, but it'd be great. But if you could get me a bouquet or something like with silk flowers because of the scent thing. I mean, I had these beautiful like wooden flowers that I had ordered that hadn't come yet. I didn't even have wedding rings. Like this is a month earlier than the wedding itself. It was like, we're doing this and we're doing this right now. And we threw a wedding in an ICU ward so that she got to see it and be there with us and take away the anxiety that was there for her around missing out on that moment that she told me was so important to her. She told me, I just want to see you get married. And I don't know that I'm going to get to. Oh, wow. Well, I was like, well, we're not having that. (laughs) Not on my watch. So I got married November 26, 2018 in ICU Unit 5 at Jupiter Medical Center in my wedding dress. I was able to have my friend make a ring. My uh, hairdresser was in Hollywood. I went and I saw her at like 6, 7 in the morning because she had some event later that day. That was the only time she could do it. I was like, okay, we're doing it. I'll see you there. We snuck some champagne into the hospital. <laughs> we did end up having a cake. How many of you? In this particular hospital room. So the my husband's children, my stepkids, their mom made arrangements so that my husband could pick them up. So our step, my stepson was his best man and my stepdaughter was my maid of honor. A friend of mine officiated. She had planned to officiate in December as well. I called her up the day before and told her what was happening. And she's like, well, I'll get that speech wrapped up. I'll be there. <laughs> I called a friend of mine who was a photographer and she's like, well, this is my gift to you. She showed up with a photographer. My dad was there, obviously, with my mom, my grandmother, my siblings, and a couple of my cousins from Canada, in fact, happened to be there. And it's almost a blur in my mind because they're like, we can't keep letting people in. But I full on walked down the hall of the ICU to my song and I walked in and there's my mom and and we had a ceremony and she got to see me get married and then she got to take a nap because she was tired it was a lot but I got to have that moment with my family like my closest family literally it doesn't get more intimate than that and then we went over to like the family lounge Um, this particular wing was for the progressive care and the ICU and had cake and champagne and there the marketing team for the hospital showed up they're like we heard you just got married can we take your picture but I will tell you that for the rest of the month after that they had my husband and I our picture was like the background on all the computers like their initiative like Jupiter Medical Center making a difference and (laughs) and my mom would she introduced me to everybody as this is the bride she was so proud and just I got to give her that and it was fantastic. And we, we still got married. We had a party on the 15th of December, my sister's backyard, only 
this time my hair lady got to use hairspray because my mom wasn't there, but we did, we did a little video chat so she could watch us. And then my husband's from England and his family was in Scotland watching remotely as only there were six hours ahead. So God bless them. <laughs> but I was going to make the most of every second. A big thing for my mom too, just to I feel like I'm talking a lot. It's okay. Well, <laughs> it's really beautiful. You're like making me too. I think I can envision the whole thing. And I'm, oh my gosh, that's so precious. Like when I tell you my mom was larger than life, took care of everybody, handled all the holidays, Thanksgiving dinner, served it in a hospital room. The day after Thanksgiving is when we would decorate the Christmas tree. You bet. There was a, l- a little Christmas tree and there were Christmas decorations in her room. And they're like... I don't know that this is policy. And I'm like, you can tell me no, but I'm doing it already. (laughs) Because it was things that mattered to her became really important to me and maintaining that connection. That's yeah, you're sick, but this is who you are. Like all the things that I know that you love, Christmas lights and family and family dinners and things like that. And I really like, I immediately took, took that on as a way to honor her while she's still here. And even after she's gone, here I am leading that charge, planting tomatoes so I can make sauce from scratch for Christmas pasta sauce from her recipe, by the way. Like just, it's how I honored the love that she gave in all of her life. And what a profound privilege to be able to give her some of that in return. And then to carry on that kind of legacy is magical. Like I said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And do I wish it went a different way? Absolutely. Do I miss my mom every single day? Absolutely. Do I think she'd be proud? Yeah. I can't imagine that she would not be proud, even just listening to you, the way you describe everything with such love and care. Mm -hmm. The issue with the sense When did you discover that? Was that before she finally got her diagnosis or after? She had noticed it before this is going back to where she's thinking she's got some allergies. Like all of a sudden, there's like sort of a misconception that you're allergic to peanuts. You're always allergic to peanuts or like that. It starts that same way. My sister-in-law, she is today would be like deathly allergic to shellfish and fish and seafood and things like that. So we don't ever bring that around. But when I was on my 23rd birthday, when she was there, we went to Red Lobster. She had like a piece of shrimp and like started to get a little tickle in her throat, but she was fine. They had to go, they took her to the doctor and she got a shot, but still not sure that she was actually allergic. And now, I mean, she's been hospitalized multiple times. Same thing with my mom. The sense started to bother her and it was before she was diagnosed. And then again, what drove her to go to the doctor or finally see a pulmonologist after having been to other doctors was that her fingertips were turning blue and her lips were turning blue, which we know is a sign that you're not getting enough oxygen. Your blood is not oxygenated adequately. But even after that, it continued. And eventually we all adapted to whatever would work for her. Like we all use the same kind of shampoo, a ton of hair. I mean, I got a lot of hair. We all use the same stuff that didn't bother her. And if even if I like if my hair is wet, like the scent is extra heavy. So I would wash it. And as soon as I'd get out of the shower, I'd blow dry, which is not something I ever did. 
But of course, because it would literally make her so sick, of course I did it. Anything to improve her quality of life as best as we could within our control. And because of the sensitivity that she had, it would create more inflammation and the reactivity and the coughing. In fact, she was still working for, I want to say a solid six to eight months after her initial diagnosis, but she'd run into people that would be like, I mean, she's literally got oxygen and she's hooked up to a bag that's got a portable oxygen concentrator to keep her oxygen levels up. But people still acted like, you're exaggerating. No, no. She had to be isolated in a separate office. And then people would still come to her door and it would cause this major reaction. And it's the kind of thing that like, once you have inflammation and things like that, and you exacerbate it, it doesn't just immediately go away. It stays elevated. And eventually she had to just, she had to leave her job because it's like everyone around her knew that she had this and would still they're like, oh, it's I just used hairspray. Same thing. And I understand it's free country. It's your prerogative. But that lack of sensitivity and compassion on the part of people around her made it so that she couldn't continue to live as normal a life as possible. And she had to get isolated. Now, all of us out here in the world in 2021 that are still here had some experience with isolation in 2020. And we know how much everyone thinks that was awful and how much it sucked. Now, imagine you're the only one in a world of people that don't care, will continue to do whatever they want, and then get mad at you when you're like, can you please step back a few feet? We experienced it with adult citizens of the world in 2020. Only imagine you're the only one fighting this battle and get how hard that had to be. And yet at the same time, she would take a stand like caregivers, like even when she was in hospice, they'd be like, she knew if somebody came in that wasn't like following the program because she'd immediately have a reaction, but she would still apologize. Like, I'm so sorry that I have this sickness. Like, are people, the people that she had worked with at the time, like thought she was making it up or being dramatic or whatever, but really she wasn't. It was just a lack of understanding and lack of compassion. And that also makes me think of people that have disabilities that we can't see. Like mm-hmm. you're not in a mobility device. People just assume you're making it up or scamming the system. What would you say to those people? <laughs> if you had the opportunity, I guess, to run into her coworkers, like, would there be something that you would say? I have actually met her coworkers after she passed away. They had a ceremony in her honor and like appreciation of her. And they planted a brick in one of their gardens with her name on it and things like that. And at that point, the only thing that was there for me to say was thank you for honoring her. Mm-hmm. Now I will say face to face when we, when I've been in stores with her and trying to check out and I'm like talking to people, like, I need you to back up. she is ill and whatever you have on is making her sicker i need you to back up i'm picturing like six feet six feet thank you (laughs) (laughs) to keep people away socially distancing before it was cool (laughs) i was a bit more vocal and i could be a bit more aggressive when i would see it happen and when my niece was born, we were sitting in the hospital and she's waiting in this one waiting room. And we tried to like hide away in like the corner to avoid people. And this one lady kept coming over and my dad kept being like, I need you to back up, please. So, you know, 
you know, you're making my wife unwell. But people think you're attacking them and take it personally rather than I'm trying to protect her health. Like yeah. you can, you can see the oxygen, you can see the machine, you can see she's plugged into the wall so that the battery doesn't die so that she doesn't run out of oxygen. And yet people would be aggressive. And again, eventually it came out more like, I need you to back up lady. <laughs> like, <laughs> please leave this room, <laughs> go wait in the hall. <laughs> and that doesn't always go over very well, but you know, it's very frustrating to have been on the other side of that, asking someone to please respect the boundaries. So since my mom passed away, I've been in grocery stores and I see people with their oxygen concentrators and I take a step back and I'm like, is you let me know if something, if some scent or something is bothering you, just let me know. And I'll be happy to back away or I'll give you space, whatever you need. Like now I'm like automatically generous with those people because I've seen what it's like. How did they respond? He was like, thank you. You thought of me. That's it. They're just trying to live their life. And then I got into gardening because I bought an indoor garden where I was growing fresh herbs in my apartment one time. So I bought her a bigger one and she grew tomatoes and lettuce and things like that. And it was turned out to be this amazing gift because we kept having, this was the year that like romaine could kill you. There's E. coli. (laughs) Oh no. And when you're immune compromised, you have to like, of course, everything, everybody's at risk. If they're talking about recalling your food supply, don't eat it one, but it can kill like really people that are immune compromised are the most sensitive to all of those things. So it was like, she's in hospice and it's, she was on a diet. They were suppressing her immune system so much. She couldn't eat raw food that oh, wow. came from that came from any outside source, but they're like, well, you grew this and it's in your home and there's no contaminants in your home. She's like, I want taco salad. You got it, mom. We were having salad tonight. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of us are eating store-bought lettuce, but mom's eating lettuce, we grew, you know, and tomatoes off her plant. She's like, oh, this is like the best ever. We take for granted so much. And I guess my approach to caregiving was to be able to keep it as normal as possible mm-hmm. for her. Because there was always a part of me that's like, we knew we were in for a fight, right? And she worked very hard to stay with us for as long as she could. And even though there were times when she didn't always feel like it and she would bump into that kind of like, everybody's pushing me to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, I could tell you a story about, I literally found, I never knew my mom not to be, like I said, this larger than life, like I can do anything. But I walked into her house one day and she's sitting there like at the table, kind of like crouched down, like her lips real tense. Like I know something's up when mom's lips are like, when they cease to exist, (laughs) something's going on. And it was just real, like the tension. I could see it. I could feel it. She was like hunched over and I could like look at her. I'm like, mommy, what's going on? And then she just blurted out. She's like, everybody's on me. They're like, you need to do this or you should do this. And I'm like, I'm trying the best I can. And you know what? This is hard. And sometimes I don't want to do it, which of course like rocked me to my core. And then I just go, I'm like, mommy, I just want you to know, like, I get that as much as I see what you're going through, only you are actually going through this, right? Only you are experiencing this in this level, right? And while I don't think you're really ready in the second to stop fighting, but if the time ever comes where you're just done, 
I will advocate for whatever you want. Like you don't have to be any particular way for me. You can be, you want to be mad, be mad. You want to cry, we'll cry. You want to fight, we'll fight. Whatever you want. And in that moment, she just like, the tension just like melted off of her face. And it was just like, mm-hmm. just for the, for like a one second, she just got to be free. Like, mm-hmm. and she knew that I was, I was there for her with whatever she needed. And that was the first and last time we ever had a conversation like that because she literally fought every day till the day she passed. Like she was doing exercises to try and get stronger, literally, Mm -hmm. in what ended up being her deathbed. And she was my freaking hero, you know, (laughs) like the fight in her. So, you know, even when people aren't sure what it is that they have to offer, know that you can meet people, literally meet them wherever they are with whatever situation they're in. There's no wrong or right way to do chronic illness. There's no wrong or right way to do end of life other than really empower or support whatever it is that the person who's going through it wants. Like I knew if she had her druthers, she would want to be at home. And I can take solace in that she had a really nice day, her last day on earth. And she got to be surrounded by her family as she took her last breath. You all had a sense that it would be her last day. So everyone was able to come over. Yes and no. Like we, um, as I mentioned, she was working on like doing her exercises because the physical therapist said they literally, it's like, do some of these motions. Cause when she went into the hospital with this infection, she walked in the hospital, but when she left, she could no longer walk because how quickly you deteriorate by not doing some of your normal day-to-day activities. She was only 60 years old. That's not Mm -hmm. very old at all. And she did her exercises, but they kind of indicated to us that it's like, really, if it takes you all day to do, it would be fine. Like, that's good. You really want to take small steps. Like I said, my mom was hardcore. (laughs) (laughs) She did her one, two, three, one, two, three. And and then eventually it was like her heart rate, like she never quite recovered. That was in the afternoon. And I think she passed in the middle of the night, Mm -hmm. like one or two in the morning. So she was still aware for a while, but just her system kind of got overloaded. And in that time, everybody else came over and she would come around and she's like, I want to see your wedding video. We watched that or she wanted to watch my brother. My brother competed on American Ninja Warrior twice. And you have to make these like intro videos for your, for consideration. She wanted to watch his video. And it was like, Even as she was fading away, she wanted us to get to be with her somehow. So it was really beautiful and I cried a lot. And if I sit here too long, I'll probably cry some more, but I can't put a price or value on the gratitude that I have that we got to be there with her and she got to have it go her way, even if she couldn't stay with us. That's, that's lovely. Huge. <laughs> it is huge. I'm a little. <laughs> that's huge. Thank you for sharing such a, a precious and personal story with us. Yeah. One thing I really hope that um, listeners picked up on that one of the many wonderful things you said is that many times it's not always about us. Like how she was having trouble breathing and it's it's really upsetting that people would not take her 
issue with the sense seriously or that she would even have to apologize for being sick. Yeah, she was apologizing all the time. And even I tell you about the holiday meal in the hospital. She's like, oh, but feed the nurses too. Yeah, sure. Everybody will make you got it, mommy. I I got your playbook. I know this. We take care of everyone. Yeah. Like That's always looking out for everybody else. <laughs> that's lovely. What I was saying was like, no one asks to be sick. And so if, if someone's asking you to just please back away for a minute or if you can keep your sense down because it's really like hard for me, I don't even understand why that would need to be something that needs to be debated or clarified further. Like it, it's no offense to you as a person. It's just wholly yeah. my illness. And if you could please do that without a fight, <laughs> you know, it would be very much. Yes. Exactly. You could see she was on oxygen, but how do we know on the outside that someone's being by a scent? You know, we don't know that. We have to take their word for it. And someone being willing to even say like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm coughing. It's your cologne and it's not, you know, people take that as like a personal offense. So yeah, don't take it personally, please. Really, Mm -hmm. it's not you and it's not them. It's their disease. Right. Is there anything you learn from this process that maybe you wish you knew before? Like, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? So it's really important. If you are going to the doctor or if you're seeing a series of doctors for different things, they're not all necessarily communicating with each other. So if you're going to see the doctor because something is wrong, there's what they're saying, there's what you're hearing, and there's what actually gets said out loud and what gets put in your notes. My mom supposedly had been told years before that she had some autoimmune disease, which I know my mom. And when I tell you, like, this was the single most organized woman, there were files, there was she every date of every appointment, those. But when she got a copy of her file after she was clearly already sick, she's like, they never talked to me about this. Like, we never had this conversation. So I'm going to grant grace for not necessarily that that doctor was negligent and did not actually tell her. And I am also going to take the grain of salt that, well, you know, maybe mommy was anxious about something and didn't actually hear what then said, or, you know, there's what's said and there's what we think people are saying. And these are real phenomena that happen, you know, like our whole experience of life is colored by what we're, our dialogue to ourselves about what's happening, not necessarily what's happening. So I would recommend people, you know, if you go to the, go to the doctor, get a copy of your case notes. If you have lab work done, keep a copy of your lab work because not only can you see trends over time, and this is me speaking like a total dork, you know, like you learn things when you can see the trends over time, you can actually see the notes and it may be meaningless to you, but it's not going to be meaningless to your next provider. Or if you're trying to bridge the gap between specialties that are maybe not communicating, you have all the information because the first thing any new doctor is going to ask you for is a copy of whatever your records were before. And people don't usually learn that until they're already sick and it becomes extra difficult. And that's what I mean when I say it was a full-time job to stay on top of this. In the U.S. healthcare system, my experiences with it so far is that the only time doctors like actually made a concerted effort to speak to each other is when she was in the hospital and it was really dire. I mean, literally six months, she would call and call and call and call and be like, did you talk to them yet? Did you talk to them yet? Did you talk to them yet? And that's also part of why she'd get her own records because she'd be like, she'd give it to the next doc and be like, okay. You're going to have to draw your own conclusions because this guy refuses to call you or won't return my call to tell me that they're going to call you. I wish it didn't have to be that way. I wish there was just, 
it was automatic, this cross-communication with whether it's private practice or in a hospital or with hospice. I will never understand the complete care in my view. Really, like, it's not just my appointment here and I say X. It's, oh, now they're asking me to talk to this transplant doc, you know, at the university. And, oh, they're saying maybe you should try this. Because some of the things that she was put on towards the end of her life as a last, like, opportunity to save her were things that other doctors had said six months before, oh, really? which we might've had a different outcome. She might have been strong enough to get on a transplant list. And I could, what if that or the other all day long, and that's not going to serve me well, but it might be a, a message of warning to somebody else and might make a difference to them. You know, And even if you don't understand what it says, having the information available, and if you find a provider that is willing to look over it for you, you might get a clearer picture from someone that you feel comfortable communicating with. Thinking you heard the whole story there when really like you might've only absorbed part of it. Not saying people don't listen, but you know, we listen for what we're interpreting. And that's not necessarily the exact information that's going to be what makes the difference for the next provider. So that's something I do wish more people knew. And I'll be taking on in my life. You know, I have copies of all my lab reports (laughs) since then. And my sister-in-law happens to be a nurse practitioner. She'll review it all (laughs) until he like, yeah, what they said was da-da-da-da-da. And she's like, oh, maybe they actually said da-da-da. I'm like, oh, okay, good. See, this is why it's good to just keep that information handy. Mm-hmm. And it's actually served us well that my mom was so organized because Wester's is going through some of the same things right now. And we literally had files of her medical records and could hence send CT scans, mm-hmm. all of that, because while it wasn't soon enough to make a difference for my mom, it might be something that makes a difference for her sister, you know, or one day for her children, you know, cause her father also had lung disease. So it's entirely possible that, you know, within 20 years time, I'll be in the same boat. So it really matters to stay on top of that stuff and to keep track of it. Now with cloud storage, we can save everything. Another thing I wish people knew in general is that there are resources out there for you. So I, like I said, I got really heavily involved with the American Lung Association. We started out as like participants in the fight for air climb in Miami. Literally, we climbed the stairs of a skyscraper to raise funds for the mission of the American Lung Association. One in three people in the U.S. have lung disease. That I mean, literally, look to your left, look to your right. Somebody's got lung disease whether it's with these more progressive illnesses or emphysema or things like that, that are affecting millions of people and many of which have no cure. After she passed away, they asked me to chair one of these events and about, you know, there's the lung force expo that is literally, they have panels of doctors, like literally the top of their field and normal people can ask like, Yes. And there's the Better Breathers Club is like, it's, um, it's a support group, but it's, again, it's all people that are dealing with some of this stuff. And, you know, my mom had gotten involved with some support groups on like Facebook, but it was just like, it just wasn't it for her. But, you know, the American Lung Association is literally organizations dedicated to the mission of these people having the best shot at life and the best quality of life. And I assert that there's other organizations out there that offer something similar. Like I'm willing to bet the American Heart Association has something similar as well. Like, because people go through these things and 
being able to have that stuff available to people that might be experiencing literally the exact same things. I'm certain my mom's not the only one who's sensitive to sense. I'm certain she's not the only one out there apologizing for her illness or her invisible disability, even Mm -hmm. though you can see the cannula in her nose. People are so like, yeah, but you're walking. It's fine. And if I could leave people with anything, it would really be just be compassionate. I don't know the full scope and breadth of what you might be going through in your life or what you might be dealing with, or even as a caregiver, it's exhausting, but I can sure grant grace for myself and for others and know that a lot of what we interact with has nothing to do with us. So I can grant some space for whatever it is that people are going through. And I will always try my best to be cognizant of that and respect that because we're all on a journey and they all end the same way. If you think about it, at some point we will all go through this, you know, and it's not something anyone can really prepare us for. So just grant a little grace, be that loving kindness, the world could use more of it for definitely, sure. <laughs> definitely. If you met someone who was going to take on the caregiver role today, what advice would you give them? Well, I mentioned grace. Grant yourself a little grace. Like you're going to get frustrated at times. You're going to be tired. Conversations you may have had when you're taking care of someone, especially if it's progressive, there may come a time where they legitimately do not remember certain things or they're telling you the same story again, just love them and love the, love yourself. And if you need a break, by all means, take it. <laughs> Truly, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to care for people. So if you need support, go out and get it. Even if you feel like you can't leave this house because you're full-time, this and that, take 10 minutes, do meditation or something like that. Something that helps keep you grounded because it takes energy. And I want to acknowledge them for what they're doing or being willing to be communicate. Don't be afraid to communicate. Talk to your boss, talk to your, talk to whomever, because we're all human beings. Right. And I'm willing to bet more of us than we may know in our individual situations have been through this. And if you need a little time or compassion or grace, offer it. And also ask for it. Human beings, man. Sharing is caring and sharing is what makes the difference because people don't know what you're dealing with if you don't speak up. And I I never met anyone who like lost out by being like, I'm having a really tough time. Just acknowledge Mm -hmm. it. People might be able to help you, you know, and you don't even ask them for. You know, I mentioned that I like told my husband, you're getting on a plane. I texted my boss to be like, I'm sorry, I can't come in tomorrow. They moved my mom to the ICU and we're getting married in this hospital. He's don't even price check the flight my credit card. Oh, that's really nice. I find there's nothing bad that comes from sharing. Just speak what's in your heart, you know, and also be willing to listen because there's golden nuggets in these moments. And even in the silence, just be with it. However it is and however it isn't, it doesn't have to look any particular way. Like I said, meet people where they are, whether it's you're reaching out for a source for yourself or being there for someone who's going through something as the one doing the caregiving. It's unpredictable at best. And the worst we can do is like fight them where they are because it's a whirlwind of emotions. If you think it's tough for you, what's it like over Mm -hmm. there? And just meet them wherever they are. And it's perfect and love them and grace, love and grace, love and grace. (laughs) Love and grace. I like that. 
What resources did you find most useful on this journey? I had a vested interest in my mom's wellness, whether or not I was home. One, being able to like this little tool right here, honestly, video chat. It's the kind of thing that makes a difference. Also, apps for your well-being make a difference. You know, I started doing the Calm app. I was using YouTube to do like healing meditations. I don't know that it actually does anything, (laughs) but it sure made me feel better to direct my energy out. I'm not a medical provider. I might help dispense her medication, but I I do whatever I can. And it it gave me peace. There's a lot to be anxious about. And I get that. Tapping into what will give you a little space around that makes a huge difference. Resources I wish I had. I wish I knew about some of the you know, available things, like I said, like panels of doctors that are experts. I wish I had known sooner how important it was to get your medical records, no matter what. And not just when you're already sick, like get your baselines. So you have something to compare to because that's what doctors are always looking for. It's like, well, how progressive is this? And now I know this for myself and for my family and communicate with each other. I would say like access to scentless products and things like that, but it's going to be trial and error no matter what, because everyone's sensitivities are going to be different. So I would say just be patient with the process. I wish working remotely was more of a thing then. I'm glad that, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, a blessing of the pandemic is that it showed that a lot of work can be done online. Being able to actually be with my mom, even if I was doing work remotely, like I was happy to just be in the room with her. And those moments don't take them for granted because you may not have them. I mean, even you or I, I could step outside, get hit by a bus and it could be all over. Anything that allows you to stay as present as possible for as long as possible is what makes the difference. And just be willing to have the conversations that are needed to facilitate that. Something I had done that made the ability to be vulnerable for myself was I I did the Landmark Forum in 2013. It's a personal and professional growth training and development program that literally helps you like distinguish whatever there is that may be standing in the way between you having the life you want. I got really comfortable with just saying what's there for me and being with people and meeting them wherever they are and also not taking certain things personally, like getting that However, these outside forces are reacting has a lot less to do with me than it does with whatever's happening over there. It made me a better human being in terms of being willing to allow that grace to Mm -hmm. exist and also being willing to just be like, I'm having a wedding tomorrow. Boop, boop, boop. Call the friends (laughs) who calls the other friend who calls the other friend. Next thing you know, with music, a photographer, a cake, a bouquet, and an officiant who had to finish up her ceremony (laughs) in a few hours, but it got done. And that made a profound difference in my life. It's also what helped me get long time ago that I'm not always stuck. And I I think I kind of shared this with you before we hopped on. I had it like I had nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. And when I really had a look at the situation, I got that being available to listen and to meet my mom wherever she was with whatever she's dealing with allowed her the space and freedom to choose to fight, you know, not to feel like she's being pushed or that she's not doing a good job or she's not doing enough, but it's just, she got to choose and she got to be free in that moment. Like somebody got her world Mm -hmm. 
in that moment. And I got, I got to give that to her. And she knew I had her back and I was fighting in her corner. And that's the kind of moment that's going to live with me forever and ever. And probably one I'm most proud of because she really was going through the fight of her life. And sometimes it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Well, I could meet her at exhausted and give her some space. Were you born a fierce (laughs) advocate or did you learn this over time? I think I learned it over. I mean, I always had a very firm sense of like right and wrong. I remember being in middle school, seeing this one guy picking on the other. I've pulled that guy off. Kathleen Kathleen Cordero at the time, pulling this dude off the other one who was about to club him. And I'm like, nope, literally like held like this. And the guy couldn't move. I was like, "Mm -hmm. are are you done? Are you done? Okay. All right. Thanks. (laughs) Some of that might've been there. And some of it is from going through this process and also watching my mom, my mom, like I said, she could do anything. And if there's anything that I would like to rise up to would be that level of loving people, taking care of people, standing up for what matters. There's millions of people, even just in the, in this of like, you know, lung disease that are going through some similar stuff. And I will fight tooth and nail for them any day. And I will share my story and I will speak to their heart and I will listen to whatever they're going through because it matters. And this is just one area. If, if more people stood up and stood for the difference that's made when people are compassionate and take care of each other and the love that's available, like people wouldn't feel so alone. So some of that is born from experience and some of that I definitely grew up with. (laughs) (laughs) Kathleen, what is one of the biggest lessons you think you've learned from this process? People say, oh, well, life is short or like youth is wasted on the young and things like that. But really it's short. It's it. Life is short. And why would you waste a minute of it? You know, if Literally, I I mentioned I could step outside, get hit by a bus. What kind of life do I want to lead? Will the people that matter to me know that I love them? Will I have done a good job? You know, like things that matter to me, like life is short. You know, do I want to spend every day of, you know, 18 hours a day? Heck no, I don't want to do that. You know, or we learn to draw a line like work is work. Work will be there or a friend of mine shared the other day. Take your paid time off because you're the classified ad for your job will be there faster than your obituary. And I'm like, that's That's true. true. (laughs) I mean, we are all expendable and you get a choice in life. What kind of life do you want to leave? Like, who do I want to be? And I even get that. It's a privilege that I can say that, that I can say, well, maybe I don't want to do X or Y, or maybe I got to do this or that. But no matter where you are, you are not your circumstances. Really, that's not the measure of a human being. And we all do. There's, there are times in our life where we feel like there's things we have to do. And maybe that's so, like, to survive. But we can be powerful inside those circumstances. I could really show up and I don't care how tired I was. I could be there for my mom. I could feed my family. I could take over making holiday dinners. I could decorate a Christmas tree in our hospital room. It didn't matter. It's life is short. Am I going to be pissed off all the time? It's just a waste. You can create joy wherever you are. Like I said, there have been times in my life where there are things I had to do, even though I didn't want to do them or, you know, stuff that was hard. And that's something that happened. It's not who I am. 
right? And and moment by moment, I get a choice who I'm going to be. And right now I choose love. I choose compassion. I choose joy. Good choices. You mentioned the importance of end of life care when you were introducing yourself. They're often hard conversations. What do you feel made it easier for your family to have these important conversations? I think part of it is actually that we didn't wait till end of life to have those conversations. The fact that my mother's father had, you know, he had lung disease and he was on a ventilator. And then as a family, like she had, I think five or six siblings all together. And they had to decide along with my grandmother, like literally because there was no existing directive and they didn't know they had to decide to take him off life support. My mom got to see what that did to their family, what it was like for her father as he passed away. So she was always very clear that it was not what she wanted for her life. She would rather not. And I know that there was a point where she resisted even going to the hospital to get help that she needed with this infection, which again, I'm grateful that she was able to come home from. And even though it was my birthday, best birthday ever. She got exactly what she wanted. And I know that she wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And again, because we're in these positions, you know, she used to joke, it's like, oh, just spread my ashes wherever, you know, like plant a tree somewhere. But then like the year before she passed away, we were in the middle of a hurricane in Florida and the power went out. And when you're in a portable oxygen concentrator, like that required switching to like tanked air very rapidly. And even in that, she had the space to tell us what she wanted that like, if something bad happened to her, she's like, oh, I want to be married at the, she was in, she was in the army. She met my dad in the army. So she's buried at the national cemetery down in Lake Worth, but she got to say what she wanted to be like, oh, don't say that. Or don't talk about that. Just be like, okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Right. And get it like, and be willing to have the conversation. I think that willingness really matters. And there's a lot of families that don't ever talk about that stuff. And a friend of mine, she's a physician. She's a hospitalist. As the physician, she can see what's the predictable outcome. She knows this stuff. And it's important to have those conversations because people that are like not ready to let go are like, yes, 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 yes. Do anything you can. But what if it's really not something that person Mm -hmm. wanted? Death doesn't have to be traumatic for the person going through it. You can have it be peaceful and comfortable. And yes, it's sad. It's absolutely sad. But would you rather being pumped full of chemicals and trying to restart your heart? Like, I don't know if people have ever actually seen real CPR and resuscitation. It is traumatic. They have to break ribs to literally chest compression. And if I think about it, it's like, who would want that? Just be willing to have the conversation. Just just the willingness. That's again in the world of grace. Like you may not like the answer, but if you guys are having conversations about it ahead of time, you can sit with it. And it gives people space to change their minds. Like my mom saying all my life, I'll just spread my ashes somewhere. It's okay. No, she was cremated and she's buried at the National Cemetery. And my dad will be buried with her when his time comes together in life, together in death. That's how they're doing it. And I have a place to go visit instead of a wreath, which I still decorate for Christmas and plant a little tiny plastic flamingo because she would find that amusing. (laughs) How very Floridian. (laughs) It's important to know what people want rather than having to have six people decide and everyone has different feelings about it. What did they want? You know, Kathleen, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to be with you. It was an absolute pleasure to have you come to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you very much. 
What did you think? I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please share it with a friend so that they can benefit from this great information as well. If you've got any feedback you'd like to leave me or if there's a particular topic that you'd like to have covered at the Good Health Cafe, please go to our website and on the contact us page, drop me a line saying what topic you'd like to cover or what you want to hear more of. Until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.